ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Our guest today is the Right Honourable Lord Zach Goldsmith. Lord Goldsmith was appointed Minister of State for the Pacific and the Environment in February this year and represents three government departments, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, the Department for International Development and the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. He has a lifelong passion for environmental and ecological conservation, sparked in his childhood by the work of Gerald Durrell and David Attenborough. Before entering Parliament in 2010, Lord Goldsmith worked in a number of areas devoted to the environment, including as editor of The Ecologist. In 2004, he was awarded the Mikhail Gorbachev Award for International Environmental Leadership. Now, in normal non-COVID times, Lord Goldsmith would be visiting us here in New Zealand and in the Pacific around this time, and we could have done this podcast then. And I would, of course, have asked him the obligatory question about what he likes most about New Zealand. But we'll manage really well from our respective sides of the world, my morning and his evening. Welcome, Minister. No my Hairamai, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. I wish I was there um, in person. I've, I've only been to New Zealand once, many, many years ago, but I adored it. Um, I went to see my uncle, who was a kind of honorary Kiwi. He spent half his time in New Zealand, half his time in England, and he was very involved in green politics in New Zealand. I think he felt like a New Zealander, and, um, yeah. and so he inspired me to go there and fall in love with the place. But I haven't been there for decades now. It makes me feel very old, and I will come soon, I hope. As soon as we can, we must plan it, exactly. Wonderful. Well, can I ask you, we met, um, we met last, and you were saying just before we started, it seems like a decade ago, but actually it was in early March that we met in London, and you had quite recently been appointed to this role. And I wonder if I can start by asking you really a question about what motivates you, what drives you, and what was it, given your lifelong commitment to environmentalism, what was it that made you decide to enter politics? So I, I've been involved in politics formally now for about 10 years. Um, so I, I was first elected in 2010. It's been very, very up and very, very down and everything in between since then. But I don't really think that was when I began being involved in politics. I think anyone who cares about anything at all is involved in politics. You, know, you don't have to be elected in order to be in politics. You, know, you sign a petition or organize a petition or write to your representative. That's a political act. Um, tweeting can be a polit political act. So I have always been political, as far back as I remember. Um, and the issue that, that agitated and motivated me, as far back as I remember, was around, mostly around issues of, to do with the environment and animal welfare. So, I mean, I, you know, I was a very young child. I was obsessed with people keeping birds in very small cages. It drove me mad as a very small child. And I remember literally knocking on doors and asking people to, you know, if they had any caged birds and would they hand them over. Um, Amazingly, a few people did, and they gave me their birds. I had all kinds of birds. But so I've always been. You have an aviary, a big aviary. I built, yes, I built an aviary. Yeah, it was a chicken coop, which I converted into an aviary, and it was very good. Um, I have to admit, I had I had help. I wouldn't have done a good job on my own. 
Um, but I, look, I've always been involved in politics. I never really thought about getting formally involved until quite soon before my first election. I hadn't really thought about it. And I was doing policy work for David Cameron in opposition. He wanted to reweave that sort of green thread through the Conservative yes. Party. There was a yeah. long history of environmentalism and conservat conservative politics, but we'd kind of lost sight of that. Um, he recognized that, which is a good thing. And I wanted to try and help rediscover it. And in the course of doing so, I just found myself getting closer and closer to the party. And I thought, actually, I've been campaigning on the outside all my life. I may as well give it a go campaigning from the inside. And, and you know, as most politicians would say, it's not that different on the inside. It's just a bit easier. And we have had in the UK now, we're in a very privileged position of having a bipartisan approach to climate change and environmental issues for quite a long yeah. time now. But that's absolutely not the same in lots of parts of the world. There are still, we still not irregularly come up against people who are climate change skeptics. Yeah. How do we convince them? Well, the, you're right about the UK. So there is a very, very broad and deep consensus that there is a problem and it's a really serious problem and that's climate change and the environment. There's a lot of debate about how to solve it, but that's good. That's what politics yeah. should be about. The different, you know, the left might come up with a different approach to the right and, and so on. But, but we, we start from the same position and that is a good thing. I, I, when I started as the editor of The Ecologist magazine, 25, how old am I now? That's 25 years ago, there were a lot of skeptics. Um, and, and I found myself debating them on TV and doing newspaper debates and so on all the time. And there are far, far fewer now than there were then. So that's a good thing. We're moving in the right direction. But I'm still puzzled by it, because if you think about it, it's a, it's a fairly simple calculation. You know, if, if, if we do nothing about climate change, as the skeptics would have us do, the downside, if they're wrong, is almost immeasurable. I mean, it hardly bears thinking about it. We're talking about an existential crisis. But if we act on climate change and do all the things that we know we need to do, and we're wrong, so what? We end up with a cleaner economy, yeah. a decentralized economy, cheaper energy, less waste, less pollution. You know, it's, it is a, it is a no-brainer. So my view is that, that, in a sense, we need to almost work around the skeptics. You know, the market is, has become a gigantic force catapulting us in the right direction. There was more money invested last year in renewable energy than in fossil fuels. And it's an extraordinary thing. That's not because of politicians, it's because it's cheaper, it's more reliable, it's more effective and so on. And that's the direction of travel. The only thing I would say as a kind of small print to that is, while there is a market for the technological transition that we need, not to say we shouldn't stimulate it, we should, but it is there. That is not true of nature. Um, the, the, the rainforests that, on which all of us depend for everything are still worth more dead than alive. And that is a massive challenge. And that's something which I think should preoccupy us massively in the run up to COP next year. We have to find a way of unpicking that problem and creating some kind of balance there. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think that's absolutely right. That in, in terms of energy and things like that, the economics speak for themselves. There's a compelling economic yeah. case. And it's not just relying on people's sense of what's morally right. But that doesn't apply to issues like biodiversity. So talk about that a little bit. Talk about, because New Zealand, of course, is very strong on biodiversity and protecting its paonga, so its natural treasures of um, of. of of bird life and, and all forms of, of nature. Talk to me a little bit then about the, the interface between the biodiversity agenda and the climate change agenda and things like nature-based solutions. 
Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this I think, is, is the issue um, that we want to bring to the table. This is where we want to have the biggest impact as a country, as co-host of COP, that we don't uh, say we very grandly, but it is genuinely a government view that you can't separate the environment from climate change. They're, they're, they're not just linked, they're inextricably linked. They are one crisis, not two. And you cannot tackle climate change without also tackling nature destruction, and you can't tackle nature destruction without addressing climate change. And if your solution is looking at just one but not two, then your solution is going to be misguided. And that's the sort of, I suppose, crudely, the core message that we're bringing to the table. Now, our view is that you could pr probably find about a third, if not more, of the most cost-effective solutions to climate change by investing in nature-based solutions, things like mangroves and forests and so on. Um, and yet despite, and there's broadly a consensus on that, but despite that, the amount of money that's spent through international climate finance by the donor countries on nature-based solutions to climate change is less than 3%. It makes no sense at all. So what we want to do is shift that. We want that 3% to look more like 30% and possibly even 50%. Yeah. And we're pushing very, very hard for that. And we're trying to lead by example. So that when the PM announced last year that we were doubling our own international climate finance to 11.6 billion, he also said that much of the uplift would be invested in nature-based solutions. And that way we're tackling climate change, we're tackling biodiversity loss, we're also tackling on, a, on so many different levels both poverty alleviation and poverty prevention. It is, you know, there's an ugly term that economists use, solution multiplier, but that's what it is. When you yeah. back nature, you have so many different solutions cascading down as a consequence of that investment. So that's kind of, there's yeah. a lot of stuff we're going to be doing until between now and COP, but, but if there was one message, I think that's it. And can you, for our audience, give me a really tangible example of a nature-based solution? Yeah, I mean, the most obvious example, I suppose, is forests. So we know that um, around a, a quarter of all emissions come from deforestation. We know that about 80% of terrestrial biodiversity lives in forests. So by protecting existing forests, you're protecting an incredibly valuable carbon sink and you're protecting the biodiversity. About a billion people in the world, incidentally, also directly depend on forests for their livelihoods. So you're looking out for them as well. And as you plant trees and restore degraded land, you're obviously absorbing huge amounts of carbon and the sort of cascade effect for people and for, um, and for nature. And we know that, for example, if you're, you know, there's an enormous amount of money globally that's invested in water related issues. We know that water, the source of all life, and when water runs out, you have conflict. It's a really big issue around the world in some places more than others. But if you apply nature-based solutions, what does that mean? It means protecting the water towers, the hills, planting trees to prevent erosion, to slow the flow of water, to enable the land to hold water for longer during dry seasons. It's true even in countries that you think of that rain the whole time, like the UK. We have had unprecedented floods last year, but we know that if you plant the uplands, you, you increase the ability of the land to absorb water, sometimes tenfold. And it's yeah. an almost free solution, you know, backing nature, backing nature's sort of, uh, free services. And the impact is phenomenal. So for me, nature-based solutions should be the first port of call. And we should be investing much more in nature-based solutions and where nature can't provide a solution, then you look elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but you find that nature is an extraordinary part of the solution if we choose to back it. And that's what we need to do. 
and that fits very closely with um, we've been engaging a lot with Maori in New Zealand on issues like climate change and sustainability and they have this concept of kaitiakitanga or guardianship and very much that sense that you've always got to live at one with nature in a give and take relationship because you've got to preserve it for generation after generation after generation and I think there's a lot we can learn from those sorts of perspectives in the run-up to couldn't agree more and and that's another area which I think has been slightly um, uh, ignored or, or perhaps underrated and that's the sort of the, the wisdom that exists among people all over the world who are on the front line it's not a coincidence that that a vast majority of intact ecosystems are controlled by owned by lived in by indigenous people um, it's not a coincidence that their land on the whole not across the board but on the whole their land is protected and it's not a coincidence that they are also finding themselves in the front line against uh, often illegal activities that destroy the natural environment so i hope at cop that we'll be able to create a really meaningful platform for those voices one so that we can benefit from that wisdom that exists but also so that we can help indigenous communities protect themselves against the threats that they face and i and i we haven't yet put the kind of meat on the bone in relation to what that looks like, but it's a commitment that we've made and I'm absolutely determined that we follow through with it. Zach, our presidency of COP comes at a time, of course, well, it's now been postponed to November next year, but of course, a huge amount of the work happens in the run-up to that. And that comes at a time where the world is reeling from this global pandemic. And we're also, of course, then going to be looking at how do we help our economies how do we recover our economies and our way of life from this pandemic because of course it's not just the health impact it's the economic impact as we are all borrowing against our children's future and you know increasing national debt massively investing massively in our economies of course it's our view here in um here in the uk but also in new zealand that we need to be building back better we need to be putting ourselves on a green recovery um, and a sustainable recovery, not just going back to the status quo ante. I think that we learned quite a lot from COVID. We learned um, to take the advice of scientists much more. We also learned um, that actually when we really need to, at individual level, at business level, at government level, we can absolutely change our policies and change our behaviors at pace. So, how are we going to use both our domestic policies but also our COP presidency to build back better from COVID? Well, it, look, first of all, I would say that, your, that the premise of your question is, is spot on. Uh, and, and we do, you know, we genuinely do have a choice now. The whole world has been shattered by coronavirus. It's had a massive, almost unprecedented impact. And countries around the world are already preparing to pick up the pieces. They're preparing to stimulate their economies. And the, the last figure that I've seen is that collectively around the world, governments have already allocated around nine trillion for the recovery. So an enormous amount of money. And how they spend that money is going to have big ramifications for decades to come. And the, the choice is simple. We can stick with the status quo and bail out the high carbon, environmentally destructive industries, lock in decades of emissions, or we can choose to make environmental sustainability, resilience, the lens through which all our decisions 
are made. And you won't be surprised to hear that I favour the latter. Um, but so too does the UK government. And the, the PM has been very clear about that. He's made it you know, very plain on a number of occasions that we intend to build back better and that the environment will be the, at the heart of our recovery. So it's really important that we sign up to that principle now. Obviously, how it manifests will be different in every part of the world. It could manifest in investments in renewable energy. It could mean you know, ramping up our investment in making homes more energy efficient. It could be, you know, one of the initiatives that we're starting here in the UK, we've created a, a new challenge fund for the environmental NGOs and the conservation organizations, and they will be able to pitch for some of that money in order to do their biodiversity work now, as opposed to waiting two or three years. So we brought the money forward in order to be able to kickstart that process. And we'll be creating jobs on the back of that, but we'll also be getting environmental gains. So there are many different ways in which we can choose to spend that money and many ways in which we can choose to stimulate the economy. But the key is that we make decisions where that whether the outcome is both climate and nature proofed um, and I feel that that actually the, the the global discussion is so different today to how it might have been four or five ten years ago it, it feels to me from all the bilateral discussions I've had and I'm sure you would say the same in your discussions in New Zealand it feels to me that the world is ready now for a reset and we just have to bank that and hope it you know make sure it actually means something Absolutely, let's hope. And we are um, very much looking forward to you taking part virtually in our Build Back Better conference that we're doing here in New Zealand uh, in, in a, a week, I think it is. Um, so thanks very much for taking part in that. We've got all political leaders here in New Zealand and our COP presidents and you um, and a range of other people to talk about how we work together on these issues. Um, can I ask you, you're, you're Minister for the Pacific, um, and of course we talk about the Pacific, we also talk about Oceania, so refer to the Pacific and Australia and New Zealand, but why, why is the Pacific, why is Oceania such an important region for the UK? Well, I, I'm going to, I'm a bit biased. Um, Partly because look, my job matches my passion. So I'm, I, the, the, the foreign office component of my job is an extension of the job that I already had, which was yeah. international environment, climate, conservation, and so on, which is what my life has been about. Um, so my answer to you may not be the answer that everyone would give, but I, I look at those small dots on the map in the Pacific. Each one of those nations is a gigantic ocean state. And it's something that has often said to me when I'm talking to representatives from those states. And the ocean matters so much um, for every conceivable reason. It matters in terms of climate change. The ocean as well is a huge carbon sink. It matters in terms of global stability. A, a billion people depend on fish for, as their main source of protein. About 200 million people depend on fish for their livelihoods. And yet we are choking the waters with plastic and we're wiping out fish stocks at an extraordinary pace. So I am hoping uh, that we will really be able to form very strong and enduring partnerships with small island states in the Pacific, but actually elsewhere as well, in order to, again, ensure that, that the, the voice of those small island states is heard loud and clear at the COP that we're hosting, but also to ensure that the ocean uh, features much, much more prominently than, than has been the case until now. And I'll just make one, one other point which relates to that question, but also previous questions. As you know, the Chinese will be hosting this, the Biodiversity COP, this sort of sister convention, a few months before we host the Climate COP. And it is our ambition, very much so, to create a, a, a 
meaningful bridge between those two conventions because a good climate cop would have a good impact on biodiversity and a good biodiversity cop would have an impact on climate change but they're treated as if they're entirely separate so we want to try and bring them together as much as possible and that again is where our friends in the pacific i think can play a really important role Absolutely. And I was at a meeting um, at the Pacific community a while ago. They're representing Pitcairn, of which I'm governor. And it was exactly that that they were saying. I think it was Prime Minister Henry Pune of the Cook Islands was saying some people talk about us as small island states. We're actually large ocean states. And yeah, Pitcairn, for example, it's two miles by one in size, but its marine protected area is 840,000 square kilometres. And so it's. I'm, I'm and one of the biodiversity jewels on the planet. I mean, it's an extraordinary yeah. thing. And, and hats off to them for that campaign. I was involved in that campaign as a backbench MP at the time, and they were superb. They yeah. were champions for their natural Absolutely, environment. and making the most of those, of those natural assets and preserving yeah. them, absolutely. Um, yeah. That's what a great conversation. There's so much there, but I think the, the really key theme that comes through is how inextricably linked the nature, protecting nature and biodiversity is with our climate change agenda and how much we're trying to drive those two things together. I want to I want to close, I think, with just a couple of uh, more personal questions, if I can. The first, I suppose, is what for you has been the most surprising thing about your role as a minister? I've, I'll tell you what, I've, I've, um, I came into government with all the cliches and, and, and you know, perceptions that people have about government from the outside. I expected banana skins all over the place. I expected to have to fight frantically for the slightest thing. But actually, I, I entered government and I became part of a, a fantastic team initially in DEFRA and then DFID and now the Foreign Office. And I feel that we're actually part of a campaign. I don't have to fight internally. We're, we are, we are a, a, a team um, committed to the same outcome. And I find that, that, that if, if people are given within government an opportunity to really change things, to really kind of nail whatever their brief is, it will happen. Um, so I sort of remember for years, ministers always complaining about the civil service and they can't do this and can't do that. Um, I have found it a joy. Actually, it's not to say that I've won every battle or won every argument. Of course, I haven't. Um, although I will continue to try. But I found that, it, that as a team, we have been really effective. I mean, I've been a minister now for a year, um, a year and a couple of days' time, and I think because of that team and because I've had these extraordinary people working with and around me, I think we've gotten had an enormous impact. I think a lot has happened in the last year. So that has been a really eye-opening and wonderful thing, uh, and I'm very grateful to them. Yeah. All, the, all the work that they've done so i mean it's it's, it's a very general answer but it's it was a surprise um it, it's been easier than i thought because the people are are just so such high quality and so good that's, well that's lovely to hear and i think that most civil servants you know myself included we we joined the civil service uh, not because of the extraordinary remuneration um but because of that that opportunity to try and change the world and make the world a slightly better place and be part of a of a of a system that can actually deliver change so my last question which i always like to ask my guests because you know we see these people in extremely powerful uh positions and they seem sort of all capable but we all of course have anxieties or things uh, that worry us um and so my last question is what is it that worries you or what keeps you awake at night though i know you've got small children it might be the small children but i'm really getting at you know what is it that still makes you feel nervous or or 
or worries? On a personal level, it is exactly, well, actually it's not the small kids that keep me up at late, it's my teenagers. I have ah. a full range and I worry like hell every night about what they're getting up to and, and whether they're safe. I'm a very neurotic, I didn't realize I was so neurotic, but I'm very yeah. neurotic. Yeah. I have to have texts and things from them so before I can go to sleep and know that, that I can sort of turn off for the night. Yeah. But the thing, that is a consistent, permanent, every parent would recognize that. But I am, the, the thing that worries me, and my, my job is not just a job. Um, it's not that you know I could be fired tomorrow and go off and do something else. I will always be committed to the stuff that I'm doing, whether it's in government or not. And that's because... I, perhaps I've read too much or exposed myself to too much of the bad news in relation to the environment, but it is bad that the, the, the situation is incredibly stark. And I feel that we're blessed with a planet that is just mind-bogglingly beautiful. We haven't even begun to understand the full complexity of the natural world. It's, it's a miracle. It's an extraordinary thing. And we are pulverizing it. We're destroying it. And it feels to me that that is that if in whatever way I possibly can, I want to try to help lighten the footprint of humanity on this planet. Um, because I feel the consequences are, that's what keeps me up at night, thinking about the damage we're doing, because so much of that damage is irreversible. Um, and and I, I'm heartened by the fact that I think that if you go to any school today, certainly in the UK, I've spoken at hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of schools, and normally I pitch up as a politician and I'm asked, you know, whatever questions they want to ask. But I'm yet to go to a school where the main line of questioning hasn't been about what we're doing to the planet and what can we do to protect it. So I have a lot of hope. I think that the world is waking up, um, but we, I just have to hope and we must all hope that we're not waking up too late. Minister, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti Anon.